What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome to the Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast. so glad to sit back relax (laughs) enjoy the podcast yeah so i guess i should just jump into it then yeah let's do it uh so today i will be talking about the murder of franklin eaton on February 13th, 1988, 17-year-old Jennifer Eaton woke up at around 6.45 to go to work. She was living with her father for the past seven years in Des Moines, Iowa, um, and that was ever since her parents had gotten a divorce. So when Jennifer opened her bedroom door to leave the apartment for work that morning. She noticed that her living room, the kitchen, the place was in a disarray. Jennifer's father would keep the apartment they lived in spotless, and it was always very well kept. So this she immediately noticed as being unusual. She would immediately notice that their VCR was missing along with cassettes and video cassettes that were usually in a cassette holder thing. Those were all gone. A plant was knocked over. The In the kitchen, there were like trash bags everywhere and laid out on the counter. The front door was also a little open. Mm. Jennifer noticed that her father's bedroom door was shut, which meant he was still asleep. Obviously, he wasn't, like, out awake. So she decided to write him a note before she left to work, um, just saying, you know, like, hey, Dad, I went to work, but also, like, what happened last night? This place is a mess, you know? So as she's, like, thinking about writing this note to her father, she decided that, you know what, that's a lot. That's too much to write down. So so she just decided to wake him up and be like, Dad, what the heck happened? What the fuck happened? Yeah, that's probably a better idea. Yeah. Because then it's the 80s. So he sees the note, and then he's going to have to, like, call her at work from the house phone, you know, and be like, oh, yeah, If I wake up and my house looks like it may have been, like, lightly robbed of all of its cassette tapes, I I don't know, like, I don't know how much cassette tapes were. I would probably, probably, yeah, or, like, call the cops or something. Right. So Jennifer goes into her father's bedroom, and unfortunately, she is met with uh, a very gruesome scene, the most traumatic you know for a girl like her something out of nightmares basically Mm. jennifer would see her father lying shirtless in bed bloodied by a stab wound to his Mm. chest in his heart area his face was beaten and sliced he was also cold to the touch jennifer tried to wake her father up while sobbing you know she would quote say please don't leave me Mm -hmm. 
after discovering the lifeless body of her father and who is also her best friend, her everything, she described as being pretty much catatonic. She really didn't know what to do, so she calls her mother, who lived about 20 miles away. Damn. Jennifer's mother, uh, her father's ex-wife, was named Lynn. Lynn would immediately go to the apartment where her daughter lived and, you know, coming to her aid after she arrived to the scene and kind of checked it out. She was like, yeah, sweetie, we need to call 911, you know, like, oh, man, I think, you know, she just had to double check that that is rough. Well, she uh, yeah, probably like emotionally blacked out. I couldn't I couldn't fathom going through something cries and daddy issues. I can (laughs) (laughs) that would that would especially if you're close with your father, like, oh, no. Yeah. So at 7:10 a.m., a 911 call was made. Tom Thielman was the lead detective to come out and handle this case. He described how when he arrived to the scene, it was pretty clear that a physical scuffle had taken place due to things being knocked over. But he couldn't find any evidence of forced entry. So the presumption was made that Ken knew his killer. Oh, sorry, Ken. Um, I called him Ken because he went by Ken. Okay. Just FYI. Detectives also further described the crime scene as saying how Ken was on the bed and he was actually not just shirtless but completely naked There was a large incision slash stab wound on his chest near his heart, as well as the injuries I had stated to his face. Ken's bedroom had been ransacked as well. Drawers in his dressers were open with clothes thrown about everywhere. There was also a jar of Vaseline on his nightstand which gave the investigators the impression of a possible sexual encounter gone Uh. wrong. CSI arrived to collect evidence and sweep for prints as detectives continued to investigate the crime scene to figure out, uh, you know, what what the fuck happened. When they are looking in the kitchen, they notice that the knife block on the counter is missing its largest knife out of the set, and this missing knife could not be found anywhere in the apartment. It's immediately presumed or assumed that this knife is the murder weapon. The apartment complex is canvassed and searched for the murder weapon, This included checking all the dumpsters, but the knife and anything else that was missing or anything pertaining to the crime scene and investigation was not found. The residents within the 400-unit complex are questioned. That is a lot of potential witnesses, um, but they only got one helpful or major piece of witness information which was that one of ken's neighbors heard ken's door open around 3 30 a.m 
Meanwhile, Jennifer and her mother, Lynn, begin to be questioned. Detective Thielman, while he had sympathy for Jennifer, a young woman, a teenager, who had at this point been exposed to such trauma that no one ever needs to be exposed to in their life, he also wondered why she could possibly sleep through her father's attack You know, it was clear that a scuffle had taken place and then the brutality of the murder. He just wondered how she could wake up with zero sense of what happened. Mm, You'd be surprised what people can sleep through. And especially with those uh, Idaho murders that just happened, the two roommates being able to supposedly sleep through what was going on upstairs. Like, yeah, especially if you're a teenager. Yeah, or a college student who like exactly. gets drunk as fuck on the weekend. Exactly. Like... It's not It's not that hard. My child slept through a literal fire alarm going off in our apartment complex one time. Like if sure. you're if you're someone who is used to sound, some people are just completely okay with that. Some people yeah, wake I'm... up to the drop of a pin. I am more so a light sleeper, but I'm a heavy sleeper. You are a heavy sleeper. <laughs> So I get it. (laughs) So, yeah, Detective Thielman is like, seriously, like, you didn't hear anything? So as Jennifer is being questioned, detectives, you know, are unsettled about how she handled the situation after discovering her father's body. Mm-hmm. Instead of calling 911 right away, she calls her mother, who then comes to the crime scene to possibly contaminate it. And then they both end up calling 911. Yeah. This is extremely suspicious at first. You know, like, what is their motivation for delaying if they had one? Yeah. Were they trying to conceal evidence, you know, like by delaying or what? The majority of crimes, for the most part, are done by someone you know. So as hard as it may be to imagine a family member doing something like that to their loved one, it's not that far off from what investigators see. So as hard as it may seem, like you're obviously going to want to look at who is in the house first as your prime suspect for what's going on, even though it's like... I'm sure that this isn't who did it. Like, right. but, but you never it's know. Just, it's just the obvious, like, steps that you have to take in an investigation. Yeah. A few hours after uh, the 911 call, Jennifer and Lynn were asked to go down to the police station <clears> for <throat> further questioning. Jennifer was strip searched when she got to the station This was in an attempt to find any kind of blood evidence as well as physical evidence on her body. Mm -hmm. There were no physical marks or bruises found on Jennifer's body during the search, FYI. So um, that just seems something kind of traumatic to go through as a 17-year-old after finding your dead father. And they're strip searched. I would be... Well, and then she proceeds to be questioned for hours you know you're sitting in that room for hours and it's cold and they try to make you as uncomfortable as possible and mm. 
Detective Thielman would get information on Ken and what his character was like, his background. This was a main priority at first um, to figure out who he was and possibly who would want to do this to him. Jennifer shared how she was a daddy's girl. They had just this special bond. Mm. He was a public school teacher. He taught English, speech, and drama. It was his calling. Jennifer said, quote, he was the best teacher ever. She said that, like, it was the cool thing that people wanted to do was being in Mr. E's drama class. Like, it was the cool thing. Jennifer did attend the high school her father taught at and shared how all her friends and fellow students adored her father. She also spoke about her parents' divorce that happened when Jennifer was 10, um, which was, you know, about seven years prior. She also shared with detectives about how a few years after the divorce, when she was in the seventh grade, her father told Jennifer that he was gay. He needed to live his life. Jennifer understood this. She struggled with this a little bit at first, but ultimately accepted this about her father, telling mm. him that she loved him no matter what. And she she said, quote, who am I to judge my dad, end quote. Yeah. Eventually, a man named Ed would come into the picture who Jennifer described as the love of her father's life. Ed and Ken would date for about seven years. And although Ken had found love, he was careful not to draw attention to his sexuality at school, you know, at his job. Yeah. Being a public school teacher, he wasn't completely out, which was unfortunately normal for that time. Um, I was about to say. Yeah. So no matter what profession, like everyone, no matter where you worked, what you did, many or most people at the time didn't come out to their coworkers or even to their family. Mm. Ken was active in the gay scene or the gay community and was an extremely social person. He loved to party. His license plate on his car literally said, I party. <laughs> I would love to party with Ken. That seems like a good time. Hell yeah. Throughout Jennifer's interview, Detective Thielman found it clear that Jennifer did not have any true motive to kill her father. She and Lynn both expressed raw emotion during their interviews and the brutality of Ken's murder and injuries just didn't line up with his 17-year-old daughter committing the act. Yeah. So, aside from being extremely upset about her father's death, Jennifer was being upfront and was determined to help in any way she could. She was willing to provide any information. So, detectives kind of changed the course of their suspicions and asked Jennifer what she knew about her father's last night alive, specifically who he was with, you know. Yeah. The night of Friday, February 12th, 1988, Ken had plans to go to a dinner theater with a friend and then hit the gay bars <clears throat> afterwards. 
Jennifer had plans to hang out with her boyfriend that evening, which she did, and she ended up getting home before her father that evening. I think she she got home kind of late, I believe around 2 a.m., When she got home, she double-locked the front door, which kind of reinstated to detectives the the fact that she was home alone, you know, like no one else, her dad, no one else was there. Yeah. And then, so she went to bed, and then at around 3.30 a.m., Jennifer heard her father's keys unlocking the front door. She also heard voices. She shared how she couldn't make out how many people she heard or whether they were male or female. Ken would enter the apartment and come down the hallway and peek his head into Jennifer's bedroom. He would tell her, you know, like, hey, I'm home. I have some people over with me. And that um, he said, I'll see you in the morning. I love you. Mm. Jennifer literally said the last words her father told her were, I love you. Gosh. She would respond with something like, okay, I love you too, good night, before her father closed her bedroom door. Seeing as how Ken arrived home at about 3.30 a.m. and he was murdered by the time Jennifer woke up around 6.45 that morning, the window for his murder to take place is pretty small, considering. So detectives needed to find out more information, obviously, on who was with Ken in the apartment that night. Jennifer was able to tell them the name of the friend who she knew her dad was going out with that night uh, to, like, the dinner theater and stuff. And this was a man of the name of Bernard. While Bernard is being tracked down by detectives to be spoken to, Jennifer's interview continues. Mm -hmm. She went into very helpful, explicit detail on everything that she noticed that was missing or out of place in the apartment. Uh, You know, I mentioned the plant being knocked over, trash bags all over the kitchen, the knife missing, uh, the VHS and video cassettes missing. But she also spoke about jewelry and clothing that she noticed was missing from his bedroom. Her and her father specifically, like, I think he had a t-shirt collection kind of. And Jennifer and her father had matching Hard Rock Cafe t-shirts And so she noticed specifically his Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt was missing. I know. Jennifer would also go into details about her father's now ex, Ed. As I mentioned, Ed and Ken dated for about seven years, in which they lived together for six. Mm -hmm. Jennifer shared how... Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, Ken found his true love, but it got to a point where they began to argue a lot and it just really started to escalate even to the point of yelling and sometimes minor violence. Mm. Ed and Ken broke up and Ed moved out about two weeks before Ken's murder. Ken was in love with Ed, so when the relationship ended pretty abruptly, Ken was, like, pretty depressed about it and didn't handle it well. Yeah. Jennifer was able to give investigators Ed's uh, contact information, 
and he was brought in for an interview that same day. When Ed is interviewed, he goes over his relationship with Ken and shares just how he kind of just fell out of love with Ken. And it was really tough on Ken because he was still very much in love with Ed. So it was just really hard for him to accept. Yeah. Ed also shared how he was with some friends that Friday, the night of the 12th. And around midnight, they went to a bar and Ken happened to be there. Ed says they spoke for a little bit and it was an amicable conversation. One of those where it was just like they had no hard feelings and they didn't talk again that night, but they both stayed at the bar. Mm-hmm. When the bar closed at 2 a.m., Ed said he left with his friends, dropped them off, and then he went home. Investigators see this as a super loose alibi and kind of gave the possibility that Ed could have been involved. Yeah. That leaves him alone at home after shortly after 2 a.m., you know, with no one to corroborate that. And the fact that you saw him on the night that he died. Right. So coincidentally. So while we sit on that information, let's go back to Jennifer's interview She was also able to give detectives enough details about her father's friend Bernard for investigators to contact him pretty quickly for an interview as well. So he says that him and Ed or him and Ken, sorry, left the bar that they were at at closing time at 2 a.m. And that is when Ken dropped Bernard off at home. Other people were at Bernard's home who were able to confirm and corroborate this. Mm -hmm. So the next big question was what happened after Ken dropped Bernard off? So we have to remember being a part of the LGBTQ community in the 80s was completely different in terms of rights they had, Mm -hmm. uh, civil, human, social rights. And medical, of course, too. But yeah. in, in Des Moines in the 80s, there was an area called the Gay Loop, which was a spot near the river, kind of near downtown, um, and I believe sort of near the gay bars as well, mm-hmm. that gay men would... I don't know if it was just gay men or if it was just, like, anyone in the community, but I, I kind of read gay men so anyways Mm -hmm. they would frequent this area in their cars you know it was like a make out spot kind of you you would go there you would meet and or hook up in vehicles or meet someone and take them home with you you know so in the 80s it was a danger to identify with being gay or lesbian in the or in the lgbtq community as a whole um and there, I think at the time there was a little more focus on just being gay instead of being in the LGBTQ community yeah, as a whole. Yeah. But it's at this day and age, whatever, it's all the same, like, umbrella. Yeah. I think just at the time it was like, oh, you're gay, you're queer, you're transgender, it's all the same. Yeah. You know, like, there were no civil rights protection, uh, specifically, you know, in Iowa, So this made detectives nervous uh, because they knew they would have to go to the gay loop or go to the gay bars to 
ask the gay community for help and for answers, and they felt like they were going to have a hard time talking to people due to the mistrust and fear of law enforcement. I mean, but that is something that law enforcement also played into. Exactly. I'm assuming Um, heavily, so... The gay loop I mentioned, there... It wasn't a stranger to um, attacks and robberies happening, assaults happening, but those who were victims of those crimes were afraid to report those crimes to police in fear of retribution for being gay. But fortunately, enough individuals were willing to come forward to detectives with very helpful information and tips about the night of February 12th slash, you know, technically early morning of the 13th. One person reported that, um, I guess, you know, his car was distinguishable it was like a gold color and he had the i party license plate yeah (laughs) and he was very social in the community so i think he just like knew people he was um one one person reported that ken arrived at the gay loop in his car around 2 30 a.m so this is suggesting that after ken drops bernard off he goes alone to the gay loop Uh I also read reports that him and Bernard went to the gay loop before Ken dropped Bernard off and then he went back by himself. Mm. But at that point, it doesn't really matter. Regardless, Ken goes back alone. Yeah. The witness saw also a vintage, which at first I was like, vintage car. Like, why is that important? But for this time in the 80s, this car was a vintage Uh, A vintage black Camaro pulls up behind Ken Eaton's car. The black Camaro did have two people occupying it. The man in the passenger seat would get out of the Camaro and get into Ken Eaton's car. The witness described the two occupants as being Caucasian and the passenger being about medium height when it comes to the actual witness descriptions of these two men, it's they're not great. They're pretty broad, but it was enough and it was helpful. And um, what was really important was these witness accounts of this vintage black Camaro. Mm-hmm. The fact that there were two occupants was important. And the fact that the passenger of the Camaro not only interacted with Ken, but entered Ken's vehicle was important. Witnesses said that it seemed like Ken and the man who entered his car talked for a while, and then the man would get back out of Ken's car and re-enter the black Camaro. After this, Ken would drive away as the occupants in the Camaro would seemingly follow The descriptions given by witnesses about the men in the black Camaro, as well as the vehicle itself, did not in the slightest match the description of Ken's ex-boyfriend, Ed. So this kind of, like, exonerated him. Damn, sorry, Ed. I was really... (laughs) (laughs) Nor his friend, Gerard, or Bernard. Sorry, why did I type Gerard? (laughs) Nor his friend, Bernard, which uh, he obviously, his alibi was already corroborated, but this just further ruled them both out of the equation. Yeah. 
Police then considered the possibility that this murder was committed by random people and it was definitely with a motive of hate and um, even possibly people purely targeting gay men in oh Des Moines. Oh, my God. So a hate crime. <laughs> Shit. None of the witnesses were able to provide detectives with a license plate number for the vintage Camaro, but investigators know that this vehicle is now the major tip or clue that will connect them or lead them to these two suspects, basically. The day after the murder, police patrol are driving around the area looking for this Camaro. They have, you know, they give an alert, I guess, to all their, all of the force and they're just looking for this vintage black Camaro. Mm-hmm. While these new leads are being chased, Ken Eaton's own vehicle has been collected and is being searched for further evidence. Investigators are looking for fingerprints and any physical evidence that places this this man in his car. Um, the suspect passenger dude. On Monday, February 15th, about three days after the murder, key and crucial evidence is finally found. Mm. Around 6 p.m., detectives get a call. Out of sheer luck, major evidence was found in a dumpster about eight miles away from the crime scene. Damn. Two garbage disposal workers were removing trash bags from a dumpster by hand because apparently that day there was a semi-truck blocking the dumpster, like parked, preventing the garbage truck to use from using their electronic arm to empty the dumpster into the truck, the garbage disposal employees had to get out and do it by hand. And again, just pure luck. When one of the guys grabs a trash bag, it rips and shit falls out of it, exposing clothing, video cassette tapes, a mobile phone, and a bloody knife. <gasps> That, the, like, series of events that happened for that to occur, I'm really what glad that What if that, that, that semi-truck ha- wasn't there? That would have all, like, you, you we know from the Jessica, or the Jesse Shockley case that, like, you, you can search a landfill. It's really fucking hard to find shit when you're looking, if you're trying to look for it. Like, that would have never been seen again. Wow. Holy jamalama. All of these items were confirmed to belong to Ken. Everything from the items in the trash bag along with the trash bag itself came from Ken Eaton's apartment. The blood on the knife matched Ken. So they found the murder weapon finally and just by the grace of the spirits above seriously someone just really was upset with what happened and like needed them to get caught not only was it pure luck but it was absolutely crucial to the investigation if these items had never been found specifically the murder it would have been really hard 
They would have had to take other avenues that would have been way harder to build a strong case with. And way more time consuming. It would have probably added to the investigation. Right. Everything in that bag was tied to the crime scene. So fuck. That is just that is everything that you're asking for. The police just got by pure what is that fucking, what do they call it the smoking gun or whatever i don't even know god that's i need to smoke some shit after that that's insane finding this crucial evidence in this dumpster also gave investigators a new kind of pinpoint location of an area to now canvas for that black camaro because so, originally they were just searching and canvassing in the area of the crime scene Mm -hmm. but now eight miles away they have kind of a new radius they can search and they are looking for this vintage black camaro so they start looking in the area of this dumpster and about four days after the murder on february 16th 1988 a black 1968 Camaro was spotted by police parked at a warehouse. This was also in this new location radius of the dumpster where the evidence was found. Police were able to find out that this black Camaro was registered to a man named James Michael Green, who went by Billy Green. Mm. He was 20 years old and had a criminal record. He pleaded guilty to burglary in 1985, about three years prior, and this burglary had very similar characteristics to Ken Eaton's murder, such as evidence being removed in trash bags. Investigators spoke to Billy Green's parole officer because he was still on probation from that burglary. Of course he was. His parole officer disclosed that in that 1985 burglary, Billy Green actually had an accomplice, 18-year-old Gary Titus. Police got a few different addresses for Billy Green from his parole officer because obviously they want to track this dude down. Mm. One was like his mom's house. Uh, The second one was like somebody else's address. And then the third address happened to be Gary Titus's residence, his accomplice. I love when shit like that just works out. Right? The black Camaro was seen parked at Gary Titus's residence, too, I guess, after the fact. So investigators, before, you know, jumping the gun, they decide to stake out and do surveillance on their surveillance. (laughs) Surveillance. Surveillance. (laughs) Surveillance. Oh, my God. One of those days. Uh, (laughs) And I just a mimosa so uh, <laughs> to surveillance surveillance yes, <laughs> oh my God. to surveil no your surveillance like, to survey like that to say something <laughs> like that investigators decided it- to stake out and to survey their new two prime suspects And this is in an effort to obviously build a stronger case and to also uh, figure out 
motive because mm-hmm. they that now that they have these two prime suspects they still have to connect them to the murder so on the third day of surveying them billy green was seen exiting gary titus's residence because it was kind of assumed they were like roommates i guess mm-hmm. and he was photographed by detectives who were staking out wearing a hard rock cafe t-shirt fuck right on out of here he's wearing a dead guy's t-shirt that's disgusting i mm, i you should get jailed just for that that's i mean this obviously on top of the other things but one that jennifer confirmed that was missing from her father's belongings <sighs> after his murder that she I had the matching s- one too god jennifer i'm so sorry that you like what the fuck is wrong with these people this kind of sort of connected billy green to ken uh it was a good start you know as well as the camaro matching the witness descriptions uh but they still had to build a stronger case and so detectives turned to fingerprints Billy Green had his prints in the system due to his criminal history. Mm-hmm. And Gary Titus was in the military, so oh. his prints were accessible through his military record and background. Mm-hmm. Detectives end up having major luck with the fingerprint avenue. Obviously, it's uh, one of the most solid forms of collecting DNA evidence that can connect someone to a crime. Thankfully, we have some matches made. Billy Green's prints matched those lifted from the Vaseline jar next to Ken Eaton's bed. I don't like that. Mm -mm. I do not like that. Especially when you hear what really happens later, like why prints lifted from Ken Eaton's car were a match to Gary Titus. Because Gary Titus was the passenger in the vehicle that got into Kenyon's car. This gave investigators enough to have the arrest warrants secured. On February 21st, Billy Green and Gary Titus were arrested. They each had a warrant out and um, they were arrested separately. So there were two separate teams that went out to complete the arrests Mm. they were also obviously after being taken into custody they were interrogated separately and they would end up being tried separately as well oh okay in their interviews or interrogations they would tell the same story they went to the gay loop and posed as gay men to lure a victim aka ken into a sexual encounter and then beat and rob him. Billy Green, it was noted by detectives that he was extra nervous during his arrest and interrogation, which gave off the impression that he had um, more of a role to play in Ken's murder, like he was Mm. feeling a little extra guilty, you know. And it didn't take long at all for him to confess, actually, what happened. At Ken's apartment, Gary Titus, this is what Billy Green tells detectives, Gary Titus would distract Ken, in which way I don't know, 
while Billy Green would kind of go throughout the apartment searching for items, valuables to steal. Billy would then grab a knife from the kitchen and the situation would escalate into escalate into violence. In a police recording from his interrogate interrogation, Billy Green said, quote, I picked up a knife and said, where's your money? End quote. Ken fought back. Uh, he, Billy Green continued to say, quote, he gets out of bed and pushes me off. I stabbed him, end quote. <sighs> Gary Titus' story or, you know, conf- uh, confession or whatever testimony matched Billy Green's. And a search of Gary Titus's residence that he was apparently sharing with Billy Green at the time, a variety of items would be there that were taken from Ken Eaton's apartment, which included Ken Eaton's wallet, in which detectives found out only contained $3 that he was robbed of and killed for, basically. As I mentioned, uh, Gary Titus and Billy Green would be tried separately and their trials would be kind of uh, apart by some time. I don't have much from Gary Titus's trial other than I think it happened first and he said something at his trial about how he believed all gay men should die or be dead. Um, I do have court records and testimony from Billy Green's trial, and this paints a better picture of what happened that night kind of on their end. Mm -hmm. So we see, like, how they went out about the process of basically fishing for a victim to commit a hate crime against Billy Green and Gary Titus would meet sometime in between 8.30 and 10 p.m. on the evening of February 12th, and they would drive to the Gay Loop area downtown where they would consume three 12-packs of beer uh, between around 10 p.m. and 2.30 a.m. At this time, they would leave the loop area and attempt to get more beer or booze, but due to the late hour, they were unable to do so. So the men drive back to the gay loop in hopes of continuing their mission of meeting someone and possibly also finding more alcohol. This is where they would see Ken Eaton's vehicle, which was a Fiero? Fiero? I don't know. It's just a a sedan vehicle thing. Anyways, uh, with the distinctive personal license plate, iParty. Green pulled his 1968 black Camaro behind Ken Eaton's car where Bill, uh, sorry, Gary Titus would exit Green's car and enter Ken Eaton's. Billy Green would then circle the block uh, in his Camaro before coming back to pick up Titus from where he and Ken were parked. Green and Titus would then follow Ken Eaton back to his West Des Moines apartment. Green would testify that once they were at Ken Eaton's apartment, 
Ken would give the two men some alcohol and he would put on a pornographic videotape and leave the room. And this is when he presumably went to tell his daughter daughter goodnight uh, as well as I guess he went back to his bedroom and changed because Billy Green testified that when Ken Eaton re-entered the room he was only in his underwear and he was sniffing Amyl nitrates from a bottle. Mm. Amyl nitrates, Amyl, I don't know. I had to look up what Amyl Amyl nitrate is. So quick sidebar and drug lesson. Mm. Amyl, yeah. Amyl nitrate is a liquid inhalant that has been used to treat chest pains and as well as cyanide poisoning. It's a clear or yellowish in color and it comes in usually small glass bottles or vials and usually or typically has a distinct smell similar to dirty socks. (laughs) (laughs) And what does it do to you? It just makes you feel all nice and loopy? Recreationally, when inhaled directly, it can be used to enhance sexual experiences or to give a general sense of pleasure. Okay. Its street names include Poppers, Jungle Juice, Liquid Gold, Rush, Purple Haze, and Buzz. Oh, Poppers. Yeah. I didn't know that that's what that was. Yeah. Hmm. Dirty socks. That's... mm. And it's an inhalant, so you literally have to smell smell dirty socks. (laughs) To get your freak on. I mean, I guess, you know... (laughs) people's different strokes for different folks i've tried many things but not that nope i cannot i am curious i'm curious to see what the smell (laughs) like i want to know how dirty of a smell we're talking about like we're like okay cool let's get pleasured yeah (laughs) (laughs) it can't be it can't be that bad if you know people it probably doesn't linger which is nice yeah you just have a candle right next to you when you do it this is when Billy Green and Gary Titus would join Ken in sniffing the Emil nitrates. Ken Eaton would then apparently ask the two men to join him in bed. And I believe they, at some point, all three of them made it into Ken's bedroom, mm-hmm. but they would refuse actually getting in bed with him. Mm. And this is when a scuffle between Eaton and Titus ensued. At which point, while Ken and Gary are scuffling, Billy Green would stab Ken with the knife that he had taken from Ken's kitchen. Apparently, he had hid it in Ken's bedroom, ready to use for whenever he needed it. So this was premeditation as fuck. Yeah. After stabbing Ken, Billy Green admitted that he helped Gary Titus remove or steal various items from the apartment. Both men would be convicted of first-degree murder, uh, which carried a, a mandatory life sentence, no possibility of parole or anything. Nice. 
So I'll end, that was, you know, Ken's murder and the capture of his murderers. I will end with a little bit about Ken and memory. So Franklin Kennedy, or Ken, as he went by, Eaton Jr., was born March 28, 1946, to Franklin Kennedy Sr. and Gloria Eaton of Massachusetts, New York. Ken had two younger brothers, and at the age of 41, Ken was tragically murdered out of pure hate and ignorance of two these two other men. Oh, Jesus. Ken was a teacher and mentor to hundreds, and he is graciously remembered as so by all of his students. His daughter, Jennifer, described him as a happy man, life-of-the-party type of person. He had a contagious smile and just made everything okay. Jennifer shared everything with her father without any judgment coming from him. And as I mentioned earlier, she was just a complete daddy's girl. Friends of Ken described him as being a very proud father of not just Jennifer, but she had a younger sister that lived with her mother mm-hmm. while she was living with her father. He was a proud father to both of them. Yeah. And he was a, not only a proud father, but a good father. Yeah. <laughs> Ken Eaton would be laid to rest uh, at his funeral, which was on Wednesday, February 17th. So in the midst of the investigation, There was a huge crowd that attended his funeral, and it was said that half of the crowd were his students or previous students. Jennifer described how she was impacted so greatly by her father's murder. Um, She really went kind of numb afterwards and turned to alcohol and for the longest time didn't know if she was going to be able to get out of that hole she was in. Mm. She did meet with Billy Green in jail 17 years after her father's murder in 2005, where she was able to talk with him and tell him that she forgave him, which she felt like was necessary for her own closure and growth from it Mm -hmm. obviously it wouldn't change anything but she was able to forgive him and has since become a victim advocate she speaks at prisons and at DUI classes and just at various events uh for what is uh she does victim impact panels basically so she shares her story her father's story, how his murder has affected her, and how she's overcome it to a sense. The Ken Eaton Foundation was also set up in his memory and is used to spread his story and to educate and advocate uh, for on behalf of hate crimes, as well as scholarships that have been uh, set up in Ken's name. So. Oh, no. Unfortunately, that was the hate crime and murder towards Ken Eaton. That was that was a rough one. 
And I did send you pictures, Kristen. Sorry, I forgot yes, to tell you. Yes, no, yeah. I, I saw them. They're just pictures of him and his daughter, so. And they're so cute. But it's, that's... <laughs> to actually have a good dad around is one thing, but then to have him so callously taken away, that that's, I don't know. The hate yeah, and, and these two fucking guys were literally out there hunting gay men, uh, it's, basically. It's the fucked The hate up. in this world never ceases to amaze me but i'm just so sick of it so you sick of literally have it to has go nothing way, to do with you waste you. more energy yes. hating someone like that than just living your own fucking life like it has no effect to you whatsoever and you're just making the world an all-around shittier place by trying to put your views onto other people that are just oh my god stupid first off just fuck off fuck right on off and then a lot of those people are fucking closeted themselves i wouldn't be surprised if they had some closeted feelings and that's why they would go and pray it's right well and a lot of what i didn't read or what that was left out is like okay well how far did you go to what was that vaseline really as used a gay for? man yeah like how far did you go to just pretend okay it's, because it's people your that prints are... were on the vaseline jar mm-hmm. you were distracting him like okay sure anywho thank Any you hobby? for that uh, i had not heard that case before so that I would like to add, I watched a show or, you know, an episode of a show on Hulu on this. The series is called Sleeping with Death. And the whole series has different episodes about crimes that have happened when people are asleep. So uh, that was, yeah. I, mean, it's I think it really, was like episode two or something. It's an extra amount of terror that, thank God, Ken did the night like did the setup the way that he did probably by not saying like oh let me say goodnight to my daughter because imagine if they knew that she was there well um i think they did <sighs> that's even because more I, up. I did i did read a little something about how when he like disappeared he was like he said something about having to close his daughter's bedroom door mm. i don't know if he specifically said like oh i'm gonna go say good night to my daughter but i think maybe she had fallen asleep with it cracked open and that's when he peeked his head in and then closed it um but i'm not sure how much of that they knew so that's scary to think about and that would fuck me up for a while yeah, Jennifer is a fucking rock for being able to pull out of that. Not a lot of people are able to recover, so. Yeah. I'm glad she was able to find uh, that uh, avenue where she can speak right. to her, for and victim that's advocacy now. She shared all her stuff firsthand in the show I watched. So, yeah, she talked about how she turned to drinking, was really in a dark place, and she's still surprised to this day that she's alive and made it out of that dark hole yeah. and that turning... She said, you know, what would my father want me to do? He would want me to help other people. And so, yeah, it's amazing. And she really is by a dude because that's not easy to do. A lot of people are never able to make that adjustment. So just for her to be that helping hand and to show people, Mm. hey, it can get done, like really good on her. That's fucking awesome. Damn. Well, guys, hope you enjoyed. I'm going to go cry myself to sleep right now. 
If you want to listen to more cases, be sure to like, follow, subscribe, uh, follow us for all the latest and greatest, except maybe not Twitter anymore. What the fuck is going on with that? We don't know what the future holds with all that BS, but all the major social media platforms, as well as some of the, you know, good pods, like lesser known podcasting platforms, we are on and we have the same handle for all of those, which is R-A-R-W podcast. So go give us a follow and go like, comment, subscribe. It always helps our show out. That little five stars right down there at the bottom takes two seconds really please thank you say hi hi. (laughs) and if you want to say hi and then a comment or if you want to send us an email if you have a case that you want us to talk about or if you just simply want to say what's up we love hearing from y'all red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com and until next time guys toodaloo mcgee i want to get i I know like i party (laughs)